You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. My name is Brad. I'm the executive pastor here, and I get the privilege of preaching this morning. Uh, we've taken a break from our Exodus series, and we're going through our Advent series, which has been titled, or which we've titled, "The Gift That Keeps on Giving." We recognize that ultimately, uh, our, the gift of Christmas is the gift of Jesus Himself, and He's a gift that continually gives to us. But with his arrival with Jesus as our gift, there's also implications and things that he brings with him that are benefits to us and our life. And so those are the things that we've been lighting candles about and then preaching on. So two weeks ago, we talked about love. Last week, we talked about peace. Today, we're going to talk about joy. And next week, we'll talk about hope. And so the, the title of his sermon, the title I was given uh, to preach on is The Gift of Joy That Keeps Giving Us Strength. And so before we jump into uh, unpacking that a little bit, I have a question. Uh, and just to make things really clear so no one feels awkward, this is not a question you have to raise your hand for. This is not a question you have to give a verbal response for. Just a rhetorical question for you to answer in your head, okay? Uh, it's always confusing when preachers ask questions and people are like, I don't know. Now, the question is this. Have you ever felt weak? I, I do want you to tell me what that's like because I don't know, but just kidding. No, I've felt weak. Uh, there was a time, one time, uh, in high school. I can't remember if I was a freshman or a sophomore. Definitely underclassman, young. Uh, and uh, <laughs> there was uh, a girl in my high school, and it was kind of the classic, like she was a popular girl that all the guys had a crush on. And her dad, as these things go, happened to be the wrestling coach, because who, who, you know, who else would he be? Uh, so the wrestling coach, uh, he also helped out with football and baseball, and so he was around school a lot. And there was a day uh, where a bunch of us guys were in the weight room at our school. And I don't remember if we were uh, football practice or what it was, but the wrestling coach was in there and he made an announcement. He said he got a, the heaviest dumbbell our school had. Uh, he put it on the ground and he said, if any of you guys can curl this dumbbell, I'll let you take my daughter on a date. And so all of a sudden, everyone's like, you know, stretching out. Uh, I don't remember how much the dumbbell was. It was like 60 or 65 pounds, I think. Uh, and uh, I think he was pretty confident no one was going to lift it. So the guys are lining up, and one by one, everyone's failing. And if you looked at me as a freshman in high school, you wouldn't have, picture, you wouldn't have seen like a picture of uh, a likely candidate to accomplish this task, okay? Physically speaking, but I had heart. And so I, in, my, in my mind, I saw this as like a sword in the stone moment, right? Like the unexpected hero is going to earn the approval of the wrestling coach and the heart of his daughter. It didn't go that way. It doesn't, turns out doesn't matter how much heart you have, if you're physically incapable of doing something, you're not going to be able to do it. And so I don't think the dumbbell even scooted across the ground a little bit. Uh, you couldn't have slipped a credit card underneath it. It didn't move at all. And so felt discouraged and weak and defeated. And that was the moment that a three-time local amateur CrossFit competition eighth place finisher was born. <laughs> It was a real turning point. Um, now, that's uh, a joke. And you all thought it was a funny one. So, um, uh, No, we all know what it's like to feel weak. Maybe it is physical weakness. Uh, maybe physical weakness due to sickness or health problems. Maybe some kind of chronic pain, aging. Uh, maybe it's weakness, more of like an emotional weakness. Uh, you're in a season of life, or you've been in a season of life where you've felt emotionally exhausted and weak. 
mental weakness, maybe even a spiritual weakness. Because we live in a sinful and fallen world, we're all well acquainted with weakness. We're well acquainted with our inability to accomplish whatever it might be that we have to do. So we all know what it's like to be weak. And we also know, I think, that strength is available to us. The Bible talks about strength being available to us. And there's a, a specific verse in the Bible that I think is a, a popular one. It's one that maybe uh, like your grandma has quilted onto something or, or you've seen it on coffee mugs or heard it a lot. And it connects joy, specifically the joy of the Lord, with strength. And it comes in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's in your Old Testament, kind of middle-ish before the Psalms. And it's verse 10, Nehemiah 8:10. It says this. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, our church family. Thank you for everyone who's here. Uh, God, we trust in your sovereignty and that you, no one is here by accident. You've brought everyone here this morning for a purpose, uh, for your glory and our good. And so we, we trust you to work in our hearts. We trust your spirit to move in our lives this morning through your word, through community, through our worship. Um, God, I pray that you would use this time to speak through me. God, I pray that the gospel is proclaimed loudly and clearly, that it would be uh, transforming uh, and changing our hearts and lives. God, for everyone in this room, whether this is the first time we've heard the gospel or the hundredth time, I pray that you would use it to challenge us uh, and that we would grow in our belief and faith in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been ironic preparing a sermon on joy this week. Uh, if you ask my wife or I, uh, words to describe kind of the most recent season in our life, maybe the last two and a half months. I don't think joy and strength would be words that we would use to describe that. And if you are familiar with what's going on in our life and are doing some math in your head right now, yes, it's about two and a half months ago that we welcomed another uh, child into our home. Uh, he's great. Love him. Obviously, joy comes with uh, having a new baby, but having a new baby also brings a lot of difficulty with it. And so uh, there has been probably more marital conflict in the last couple months uh, in our home than in the previous six and a half years of marriage. Someone in their house has been sick, like many of you, for what feels like months now. Uh, there's been some extended family drama that has weighed heavy on us. And so when I learned that I was going to be preaching a sermon on joy, I think that was the most joyful moment I had was a little chuckle. Like that seems ironic that I'm the one who has to preach on joy, given just kind of the season of life that uh, we found ourselves in these last couple months. And I don't say that for you to feel sorry for me or uh, to throw a pity party or anything like that, but rather uh, so that you know that your preachers, the people who are preaching at you or to you uh, on Sunday morning uh, are not somehow above you or preaching like we've mastered the thing we're preaching and then waiting for you to catch up to us somehow. I need this sermon. I, I've needed this prep. I need this message just as much as anyone here. Uh, and so all this kind of kind of came to a head in my prep on Tuesday morning. I woke up Tuesday morning. I've been sick for, I think I'm going on three weeks now. Hence the dry mouth and sniffing and all that kind of stuff. I used to pride myself in not getting sick a lot. And when I did get sick, I had it down to a science of how I got over this thing. 
and then I had, we had kids, and kids are gross, and then when kids get old enough, they hang out with their gross kid friends, and then it's just germs everywhere. And I woke up, I went to bed Monday night thinking I was going to wake up and not feel sick anymore. And I woke up Tuesday and I felt worse than I did Monday. And I was angry. And then my son Riggs, who's almost two and talks constantly and we have no idea what he's saying. He's cute most of the time. He was like at my feet, like a little puppy dog, just following me around whining about something. And I don't know what. So I'm sick. I'm mad. I'm like stomping around the house and Riggs is following me around whining about something. And I stopped for a moment. I was like, all right, Brad, come on. You're preaching on joy this week. <laughs> Have some joy of the Lord. And uh, it felt like, you, you remember the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie when he's first learning his, about his powers and he's trying to make the web come out of his wrist? Anyone tracking with me right now? And he's like, fly web, go, and he can't make it happen. That's how I felt trying to conjure up joy. I'm like, come on, joy, like fly, joy, fly. I couldn't make it happen. There was no switch within me that I could flip to just produce joy, right, within myself. And here I am preaching on joy. And so I was convinced there has to be something more. There has to be something I'm missing. Either I'm not doing it right, not doing joy right, or I'm not understanding what this joy actually is. And I think it's that, that second thing. And so I want to look at this phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think there's a key in here that is easily missed. This is actually what we need to understand for us to have joy in the midst of all kinds of circumstances like Rick was talking about earlier. So Nehemiah 8, 10, and then that specific phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. There are two ways you could read this phrase, and maybe you're seeing it already. The joy of the Lord. Either it is God's joy over us or our joy from God. Okay, do you see the distinction? The, the joy of the Lord could be a possessive. It's God's joy. Or the joy of the Lord could be God's joy that he has given us that we have. And so whose joy is it? God's joy over us or our joy from God? There's two keys in this that I think help us understand which one it is meant to be. I'm going to argue that it's the first one. I think it's God's joy over us. So first we consider context. Anytime you read a verse or a sentence in the Bible to rightly understand or interpret its meaning, you have to take into consideration the context. You can think through context in, I think it's concentric circles that go outside of that verse. Where does this verse sit in a paragraph? Where does that paragraph sit in a chapter? Where does that chapter sit in a book? Where does that book sit in a testament, either old or new? And where does that testament sit within the larger story in scripture? And so let's work backwards through that. Our Bibles are a story about God rescuing his creation from sin and bringing people back into a relationship with him. God created a good world where people were to relate to him and be in a relationship with him, but that was marred and broken and damaged because of people's rebellion against him. So humans collectively and individually have sinned, rebelled against their creator, and that has created a divide between us and God. And the, the Bible is all about God redeeming and rescuing and restoring people through a human, through a, another person who's going to come and save the world. Now, the Old Testament tracks the story of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel were people that God chose to be his representatives in the world. In Exodus 19, which we'll get to back in our Exodus series, God tells Israel that they're to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. 
that they're God's chosen people. So, so the purpose of Israel, they were supposed to live lives set apart from the world around them so that they could reflect and show the world who God was and therefore bring people to the one true God. They were to serve as a mediator between people and God as this nation of priests that lived set apart lives. But as you read throughout the Old Testament, you see Israel fail again and again and again. And eventually, they look no different than the nations around them. And so the holy lives they were supposed to live, they do the exact opposite. And the consequences for that is exile. The Assyrians and then the Babylonians come into my iPad thinks I said, hey, Siri. <laughs> uh, uh, the Assyrians and then the Bab... And that did it again. The Babylonians come in and they, they conquer Israel and Judah and they take them out of the land. And they live in exile for decades. While in exile, the Persians come in and take over Babylon. And so now they're, they're mass, the people who have control over them are the Persians. The Persians' way of doing things was different. And the Persians allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland and rebuild. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come together. They're separate in our Bibles. It's one story. It's one book about the Israelites' return from exile to the land. And it's about rebuilding the temple. It's about rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It's about establishing a new government. And it's about them renewing their covenant with God. Now, the chapter that we are in, in chapter 8, starts a three-chapter section on this covenant renewal ceremony. It's like a renewing of vows, right? Israel has sinned. They've been unfaithful to their commitment to God. God has remained faithful, so they're coming back together to say, this is what we agreed upon. This is what we agreed to do for one another. Let's recommit to one another and move on from here. So we've gone book or Bible, Testament, book, chapter, the paragraph that we find ourselves in. Ezra has opened the law, the first five books of our Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he's read it aloud to the people gathered there in this newly rebuilt Jerusalem. They've returned to their land. And as he reads the law, other teachers are like breaking people up into small groups. It's like the first small groups we see in the Bible. And they're explaining the law to them. And everyone is understanding what is happening. And as they grow in understanding, they start weeping and mourning and grieving. Because they've realized what God has promised them, what God promised their forefathers, what God expected of his people, and how the people failed. They realize that their ancestors, the generations that have come before them, have been unfaithful to the covenant that God made with them, and they're grieving over it. And now we come to the verse that we're at today. Nehemiah's response to their weeping, to their mourning, is this. Then he said to them, go your way, have a party. Get a bunch of really good food and a bunch of really good wine, and then get enough to have leftovers to send to anyone who doesn't have any. This day is holy, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when we consider the context, are we talking about these people who have just been uh, hit upside the head with the sinfulness of their fathers and their people, and now Nehemiah is like, go have joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, or is it hey, you're realizing your unfaithfulness to the covenant, but remember, God has been faithful. He's still rejoicing over you, and that is where you find strength. I think that makes more sense given the context. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This, is, this comes immediately before God sends his people into exile. 
and the promises I'm in your midst. I'm a mighty one to save, and I will rejoice over you. So I think in this Nehemiah 8.10 passage, God is still rejoicing over his people, still delighting in them, still exulting over them despite their sin and unfaithfulness. The second key in this text that I think helps us understand it is the word strength. Super common word in our Bibles in the Old Testament. Like 30-something times it's used throughout our Old Testament. This is the only time in our, in our Old Testament where it's translated strength. Now, I think our English translations of our Bibles are gifts. They are reliable, trustworthy. I am so thankful that we have them. They're still translations. And every once in a while, the translating committee makes a decision that might not agree with. Those decisions that we might not agree with never have anything to do with core doctrine or the foundations of our faith. But here's a translation that I think is a misstep because every other time this word is translated in our Bibles, it's translated into stronghold, refuge, or fortress. And so the difference might be subtle on the surface, but I think it has massive implications. If it's strength, strength is something that I have and then I do things out of. If it's a stronghold, a stronghold is something outside of myself that I run to for protection, for refuge, for cover. And so is, is, is God's joy over us our strength or is it a stronghold? I think it's a stronghold. And so again, this, this seems subtle on the surface, but I think it makes all the difference in the world because when it comes to joy and strength, neither of those things originate with us. They start with who God is. They start with what he has done. It starts with what he thinks of us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Another way of, I think the better way of understanding this is God's joy over you is your stronghold. God's joy over you is the place that you can run for refuge and protection. When you're faced with the reality of sin and suffering in the world, when you're faced with the reality of your unfaithfulness to God's covenant, like the people were, God is still rejoicing over you. He is still committed to you. He is still faithful to you. He is still delighting over you, his children, despite your sin, despite your unfaithfulness. And that truth, that reality, the fact that, that that's how God sees you, that's a stronghold that you can run to and take refuge in and hide in and find protection in. Now, I still think there's a promise of joy here for us to experience. So what does God's joy over us have to do with our joy in him? I think everything. I think God's joy over us has everything to do with our joy in him. Remember, Nehemiah does tell them, stop grieving. Stop grieving because for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so there is a, a command here, a call here to have joy. But our joy, our joy in the Lord first starts with and is rooted in his joy over us. At the end of Nehemiah, after the people recommit to this covenant, recommit to be faithful to it, we see them break the covenant like few chapters later. They end up committing the same sins and doing the same things that their forefathers did. The cycle of sin and rebellion has to use, and we see something has to change. Something with humans has to change. Our hearts have to change. God's joy never changes, and his joy ultimately leads him to send his one and only son to do the rescuing that he planned all along. Jesus lived a perfect, holy life. He was the, the priest that the nation of Israel, Israel could never be, living a holy, set-apart life and mediating between God and man. He was righteous. He was holy, never rebelled against God, never disobeyed, and yet he was put on a criminal's cross. And on the cross, he bore the sin of the world 
the wrath of God so that anyone who places their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus could be spared from God's wrath and given new life. And he rose from the dead so that we too one day could rise from the dead. Why, why did Jesus do all of that? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for joy that was set before him. What was before him at the other end of the cross? You, me, a relationship, restoration with our creator. That's the joy that led Jesus to endure suffering on the cross. So Jesus's joy has everything to do with you being his and him being ours. In John 15, chapter 11, Jesus says this, these things I have spoken to you, these things, this is the chapter about the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, abide in my love. So he's talking all about union with him, people being one with Christ and there being a relationship there with one another. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What does Jesus's joy in us have to do with our joy in him? Everything. Because ultimately, it's his joy in us that he gives to us. Our joy is complete when we receive from him his joy, which is joy over us. You see what's going on here? So how do we have joy in all circumstances? How do we have the kind of joy Paul can have when he's sitting in a prison cell saying, rejoice? Again, I say, rejoice. We can have joy in all circumstances because or when we reflect on God's joy over us as he's shown in Christ. So go back to my Tuesday morning as I'm sick and Riggs is wanting something that I don't know at my feet. If I would have stopped and instead of tried to like, you know, make joy just appear, if I would have stopped and thought, okay, I'm sick. It's making me real mad. I love my son, but he's kind of being annoying right now. Regardless, God's joy over me has not changed. When God looks at me as his son, he is delighted. He is overjoyed. He's rejoicing over me, not because of anything I've done, not because I'm being a good dad or a good husband in this moment, none of that, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf. And I think this is where the, the, the tricky thing about joy in the Christian life is we always say, rejoice, but it's okay to lament and mourn also. And it's kind of like, but how do, like, how do we do both? And, and I, th- I think this at least starts to address that tension because We can acknowledge pain and brokenness in our life. It leaves room for lament and mourning, but it also acknowledges how God views us, which I do think generates feelings of joy within us that are not dependent on our circumstances. Our circumstances, like Rick said earlier, our circumstances change all the time. Tomorrow, something could happen that could remove something that's been giving you joy. But the one thing that will never change, the one thing that will never be removed is God's joy over you. The way that God views you and his delight in you will never change. And so you can mourn and lament difficult circumstances while still having joy because your joy is connected to his view of you, which will not change. I think there, there can be a lot of things that prevent us from experiencing joy. Some circumstances are out of our control when it comes to preventing us from from experiencing joy. Maybe that's a death of a loved one, a diagnosis of a sickness or a condition, the betrayal of a spouse. There's all kinds of circumstances that are kind of out of our control that can prevent us from having joy. But God's joy over us 
lets us know that one, he knows us and he knows the depths of our pain probably more than we ever will. It also tells us that he loves us and he cares about us. He cares about us enough to do something about the pain and brokenness in the world. Death will not have the last word. Sickness will not have the last word. Pain, betrayal, sin will not have the last word. God has the last word because in his joy for his people and his creation, he sent Jesus to do something about sin and pain and brokenness and death. And so if, if you're in the, the camp of you're having a hard time having joy this Christmas season because of circumstances that are out of your control, I would encourage you to run to the stronghold that is God's joy over you and rest there. And I think, I think you might start to feel some joy when you consider how he views you. Then there's another camp here. Uh, which are circumstances that are in our control. And, and I think there's different conditions of our heart that might be preventing us from experiencing joy. We'll go through a list of them here. Maybe you are not experiencing joy because of fear. You're afraid of the unknown. You're afraid of bad things happening. You're afraid of the future. You're afraid that the past will come back to get you. You're afraid. You have fear. And fear is preventing you from experiencing joy. I think it's helpful for a fearful person to lovingly walk through the logical conclusions of their fear. And the, the, the worst possible thing that could happen to you is death. And as a Christian, you don't have to fear death. Jesus conquered death. Jesus endured death with joy for you so that death in your life is a comma, not a period. There's a life after death and hope after death, and you can conquer death because of Christ. And so what, what do you have to fear? Rejoice. Maybe shame is preventing you from rejoicing. Shame of your past, your sin. You think you're a mistake, a failure. But here's the reality. You think you're bad. And God knows the depths of your sin and brokenness far more than you ever will. In fact, I think if, you, if we could see our sin through God's eyes, it would, the weight of it would crush us. God sees that, and yet he's singing songs of rejoice over you. He loves you. He is overjoyed that you are his, despite the sin that you are so ashamed of. So shame doesn't have to rule us. We can rejoice. Maybe it's pride. I think pride is an obsession with self that can lead either two ways. One is uh, entitlement, like the arrogant side of pride. The other is insecurity. And so the entitled, proud person you think that you deserve more, you deserve better, that th life is against you, and uh, th th more should be coming your way. But the reality is, is what you ultimately deserve is death and separation from God. You don't get that because of Christ's joy over you. And so everything else then is a gift. You can rejoice. To the insecure proud, you're so worried about what people think of you that your insecurity is preventing you from experiencing joy. But the only opinion of you that matters even more than your own is God's. And he's delighted by you. He doesn't see flaws. He doesn't see insecurities. He doesn't see those things. What he sees is a beloved son or daughter. And he's overjoyed by you. And lastly, maybe discontentment is preventing you from experiencing joy. You wish you had more of this. You wish you lived here. You wish your marriage looked like this. You wish your kids looked like this. Life is just never exactly the way you wished it looked. And so you can't rejoice. 
God is not rejoicing over a different version of you. He's not rejoicing over a past version of you or a future version of you or a version of you that's in a different marriage or lives in a different house or has a different bank account. He's rejoicing over you right here, right now, where you sit, exactly how you are, not some other version of you. So don't let discontentment prevent you from experiencing joy. My hope uh, this Christmas season and the rest of our lives that we would not try to conjure up joy within ourselves and flip some switch that makes us feel joy. I think if we do that, we'll end up frustrated and ultimately joyless. But if we stop and reflect on God's joy over us, we'll find a refuge and a stronghold to run to for protection, no matter what life sends our way. And I think it's there, under that safety and protection of his unchanging joy over you, that we start, start to experience joy as well. Uh, I've been in a lot of weddings. That's not a boast or anything. Uh, I'm like the girl in the movie 27 Dresses, but I have 27 pairs of gray pants, and they're all just a slightly different shade. Could never wear one pair twice. I've been in more weddings than I've been to as a guest, which has afforded me uh, a different kind of experience of the, the wedding event. And there's something I noticed at every single wedding where I've been able to sit at the front or stand at the front that I think is really fascinating. So the bridal party walks down the aisle and everyone gets in a line and the groom is there with the officiant and then the song changes and then the bride starts to come down the aisle and the mother of the bride stands up and everyone follows suit and then everyone turns in their, in their seat so they're facing the back, the aisle where the bride is walking down. And so from the front, all you see is people's backs and kind of like back shoulders because they're all facing that way. And every single wedding, without fail, you start to see heads go and turn and look because they want to know what the groom thinks. They want to know, is he crying? Is he laughing? Is he even still there? Maybe he ran away. Does he look terrified? Does he look overjoyed? What does the groom think about his bride? Uh, I've been told that the, one of the jobs of the preacher is to lead the bride, the church, to the groom every Sunday morning. That my, my job is to basically walk us down the aisle to come face to face with our groom, which is Jesus Christ. And maybe as that's happening, hopefully this morning, you're wondering, what does the groom think of his bride? What does the groom think of me? Does he notice that my makeup is smeared? that I am really uncomfortable walking in these heels, that my dress doesn't fit, that my hair is a mess? Does he, is he thinking about my past sins? Is he thinking about the, the baggage that I'm bringing into this relationship? Is he thinking about the ways I might fail him in the future? Is he thinking, man, I have a lot better things I could be doing right now? What, what does the groom think of his bride? I'll tell you right now, it's written all over his face. He's overjoyed. His face right now is looking at you and it's beaming with pride and adoration at how beautiful his bride is. And it's not because of the beauty that you bring to the table. It's because of the beauty that he's provided to you through what he's done on the cross in his life, death, resurrection. And I've never been a bride in a wedding, but I would imagine that for the bride, as she gets to the aisle and there's all kinds of distractions and things on her mind and she sees the face of her groom, the tears in his eyes, the joy in his face, all of those things just fade away. They're still there. Your hair's still a mess, but you don't care anymore because the groom is overjoyed that you're his bride. Church family, Jesus is overjoyed that you're his bride. 
He is singing praises of delight and exultation over you. And that and that alone is going to give you joy. And so my hope, my charge, my challenge, exhortation, call it what you will, is to look at him, to look at his face, to see his joy over you, and then to rejoice in him. And by way of application, I'll close with this. Also look at one another. We're collectively the bride of Christ as a community. Paul in Philippians 4 calls the church his joy. And so maybe looking at Jesus is really hard right now, but you can look to someone to your left and right who is also the bride of Christ, and maybe their joy in him will produce a sense of joy in you. See, being at church on Sunday morning is much more than just checking the spiritual box of I did my spiritual duty and it's Christmas time, so I should probably come to church at least once a year. Uh, being at church is more than receiving some kind of service or, or, or uh, production or presentation from the leaders of the church. Coming to church week in and week out is an opportunity for us to rejoice and be reminded of what Jesus thinks of us and then what our us collectively as the bride of Christ thinks of him. So I'll invite the band back up uh, and close us in prayer as we move to a time of communion. Jesus, thank you that you are delighting over us. Even right now, as we sit, I know there's people in their seats who do not believe what I just said. God, I pray that you'd break through people's hearts, break through my heart and show us Make us believe that you see us with love, joy, delight, and exultation. And God, let that and that alone produce a kind of lasting joy in our life that we can't shake. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.